Delighted to have Jim back in the studio after he abandoned me. Oh, God. Don't, don't bring it all up again, please. In his absolute just talent and uh, being involved in so many different things, I'm delighted to now welcome him to talk about his second volume of Matters of Great Indifference, Reflections on Modern Rural Living. So the first volume was a treat in itself, and I know many of us thoroughly enjoyed learning more about Jim through the stories of his life. So, Jim, tell us about Volume 2. Uh, volume 2. I suppose um, loads of people kept asking me, when are you doing a second volume? And mm-hmm. I said, the first volume, there were three, there was three years of work involved. I began writing the column in 2017. And actually, I got the phone call to know if I'd do the column. I was actually in um, Dune Big with the uh, Schlieve Octi Brow mm. Group. Uh, we were setting up for, um, the, uh, for the festival. And, um, was that for Sive or? It was for Sive, yeah. wasn't it? It was for Sive. And, um, yeah, it was for Sive, wasn't it? 19, yeah, 2019. 2017, it wasn't, yeah. no, it was no. Rabbit Hole. It was ah. for Rabbit Hole, it was, yeah, it was for Rabbit Hole. Um, and because Michael um, Michael Kelly was, was there, you know, young Michael, mm. and I was standing, he, we were unloading a truck when I got the phone call. I remember when I was standing there and I was walking around the yard and when I got the call to, to, to do it, I said to myself, I used to write an opinion piece for the Farmer's Journal when I was editing section two, and I used to write it on a Sunday night, and that was a big job. But Thursday morning was an absolute nightmare, because not, not so much a nightmare, as when on Thursday mornings I'd come out, and um, when the paper come out, and you'd say, did I get anything wrong? Did I say something that I was going to draw, tore her down on top of me? So, but anyway, I thought about it and I said, listen, I will. And I wrote actually about travelling down to West Clare, the first piece I did mm. with Shlivakti. So um, I did three years and people said you should put them together and I did. And then this year, quite a few people asked me, was I going to do another one? And I thought about it. And what I did was, I, oh yes, I was at a book launch by uh, a friend of mine, Father Michal Liston, and it was published by the Limerick Writer Centre. And the last book was pub- self-published. And I was really impressed with the way the, what they did mm. and how they did it. And so I made contact with Dominic Taylor of the Limerick Writer Centre. And so he said, go away and read through what you have for the last two years. And I did. And, you know, I <laughs> um, surprisingly, I thought, yes, there is enough here yeah. to make uh, a volume. So I, I did. I put it together and it happened all very quickly. I suppose the difference is, and I've said it in the intro and in the blurb and that, was that while the last one was written in the, f- in the full bloom of, of, of life and towards the end there was the, the, p- the pandemic, I suppose the fact that my work is a bit more restricted now by the pandemic and mm. or was more and I'm not travelling as much to farms and that because I write property for the farming independent as well, I, this became more monastic, I would say, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the, a different rhythm to life, a bit more reflective, perhaps. And I think definitely, like even, you know, for the time that I know that you were here, like the volume of things that you have on <laughs> is where did you even get the time to put this together? Well, that was amazing because in the sense that I do have uh, quite a bit on and, and work wise as well is very busy at the moment. And um, I suppose the, the well, funny enough, when I when when I read through the, the, the bits and pieces, I realized I didn't have that much work to do on them. Mm because they were very much ready for print anyway, yeah. going out in the paper. So aside from a few typos that I still see, but um, uh, I thought it was pretty much ready. And also the, the, the publisher said, listen, if we don't have to get a print review, 
uh, or a, a final print preview, which takes the longest bit. If you're happy mm. with it, um, I said he said we can cut, shortcut it. Uh, so we did. Yeah. And so it was, it was um, uh, and so the, uh, it, it, although I must say the final night I sent it off, I was working till five o'clock in the morning oh, to send it off. So. Yeah, uh, and it's de- like it's a lovely book. So I, I've been dipping in and out of it now over the over the week in yeah. preparation. Um, but as I've already mentioned about stocking fillers, I know several of my family will be uh, happy to get a copy well, of your you book. Yes, uh, one of the things is that there's definitely a different feel to this volume. So yeah. where the first one was very much kind of learning more about you, learning about your family, the history of Jim mm-hmm. O'Brien, <laughs> yeah. and you know your family as well. Like there's this one, I suppose, is probably more current. Mm, mm. Um, so do you want to talk us through like what like when you were putting this together because you do you do even mention in the intro like there is obviously there's a focus on climate change there's the you know living through the pandemic there is a lot of things there's still a lot of light-hearted you know yeah. mm. pieces in this as well but it is also more reflective about the times that we're in it is yeah well i i mean um there are three things i think uh, that are uh, affecting us um i think the major one is climate change. It is the issue of our time. Mm. I mean, the fact is, we are taking everything out of a finite planet yeah. and we're not putting it back. Mm. And uh, that is the basic uh, economics yeah. of, of what's happening. And also that we are making it uninhabitable. Mm. So we have to face that and we have to deal with that. And that is the abiding issue. Yeah. And so... Uh, and I have children, my three daughters, and I don't know, maybe I'll have grandchildren, I don't know. But I want um, them to make sure. Yeah. That th- I mean, who am I to say that the next generation won't be able to breathe? Mm, mm, you know? Mm. And that they won't have solid ground to stand on. Who am I? What kind of arrogance have we? Yeah. That we are deciding that they will not have a habitable place to yeah. live. So I'm, I'm, as the old rank the the worst thing in, in the last piece, I said, I was walking down O'Connell Street last week and I said, what if I took all my clothes off and sat in the middle of O'Connell Bridge? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, um, well, uh, you definitely and, go down as legend because, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> make a lot of people sick. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but at least somebody would ask me why I did it. Yeah. You know, and we need to, so, and that's the one thing. And I suppose, Jim, people are, by this, you mentioned it there, like, people are not taking it seriously. No, and no. they're not, and, it, and it's happening. I mean, it is happening. Mm. I mean, always look at the torrents of rain we've had for yeah. the last yeah. Yeah. Yeah, six yeah. weeks, you know. Mm. And um, so, anyway, that's the, that, that is the huge issue. I think the war. I mean, mm. we're living in wartime. Mm. So that is the other There's a war in Ukraine. One go- country has decided to invade another. Now, that's happening all the time, and it happens everywhere. But I think we are living in in, in a wartime and um, the moral fibre of who we are is going to be decided very much mm. out mm. of this. Yeah. So that, and I think we need to be really, I, I think, yeah, we're, and I think it's a different experience for us living in wartime. We've lived in peacetime since mm. 1945, practically. Um, and we're living in water. And that's another thing, I suppose, that people from Northern Ireland keep telling me, and I keep, you know, when you talk to people from Northern Ireland, eventually, when you get down beyond the superficial, say, actually, we're all the same, in some way, they will tell you, no, we have been living in a war situation. Mm. We mm. have been living in conflict yeah. for for 70 years. Yeah. So therefore, you don't know, you know. So now we're living that. So that has to change our perspective, and it impacts on us. The, ultra, the end result of it, I don't know, you yeah. know. The, the other thing is, I mean, as the West, we're no great moral um, uh, 
compass, you know, yeah. We know a great moral compass. I mean, we tore Iraq apart, we tore Afghanistan apart. Mm. And now we're saying we can't let Ukraine be t- torn apart. There's also huge. And also, um, we're allowing the, the, the Palestinians to be to, to, to be slaughtered. Yeah. So we need to ask those questions as well. But that does not uh, mean that we can't do anything or we can yeah. do nothing about Ukraine. Yeah. So those are the two things. And third thing is technology. I think it's just changing so rapidly. Yeah. I mean, I, I travelled this week. God forgive me. Uh, I had to go to Brussels. and um, Shaping but, European yeah, policy. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, just <laughs> looking on. But everything's on the phone. You know? yeah. mm. Before you be my passport, my ticket, my money, everything. But yes. no, it's all exciting passports on the phone. Yeah, I used to love years ago, like especially when if you got a Blackberry, it was like you were the fanciest ever. You had a yeah. Blackberry. Yeah. Yeah. But I al- always loved that where I work for a crowd that we had to go to LA but like literally you would go on a Wednesday and come back on a Friday mm-hmm. and then you had the weekend to rest effectively and get over mm-hmm. the jet lag but as soon as you got on the plane you were not contactable and it was glorious yeah. because you were told okay well you could do this piece of work on the plane but all you did is you watched the movies whereas now you can be contacted no matter oh, where you absolutely. are when you're on the plane you can still be contacted and it's an absolute tyranny yeah. that, that you don't have any space the other thing I suppose and reflecting on climate change and travelling this week again uh, is just say you know to, the amount of, of, of all of us who are still travelling on planes mm. and you just know that's unsustainable yeah. and you just look around and I also I was reflecting that and I wrote about this week was that airports are such stressful places yeah. everybody is under yeah. pressure huge and it's kind of a little microcosm of the kind of life we live in mm. that, that everybody is such pressure anyway so and do you think do you think people are blaming agriculture too much will say they're not they're not talking about the planes the boats anything like that and they're probably you know releasing more carbon emissions um i think we've got to get away from the blame game mm. yeah everybody has to get away from it yeah farmers have to get away from it um the the, the airline companies have to get away we have to stop it's as if the house is on fire and we're having an argument outside in the back garden about whose fault whose fault is rather than trying you know, to fix it yeah rather than trying to put it out yeah being childish like yeah absolutely yeah. childish and it has nothing to do with me and people acting the ostrich. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely incredible. Mm. And actually, even in terms of travelling, I definitely would advocate for taking the boat. But the only thing is, is that it just takes a lot longer to and get anywhere. Even the time, because yeah. my, um, and, and I, think, I think we've got to get ready, get prepared for use of time. We have one of our cars is an electric car, two cars, one of them is electric. And it's one of the older electric cars. Um, it's got 200,000 kilometres in it. Um, but um, the thing is, I can go to Dungarvan, for instance. I was doing a bit of work in Dungarvan. I'd have to stop in, in Cashel. I'd have to take back roads and stop in yeah, Cashel yeah. to top up. Yeah. And I'd get a bit of work done there. Um, so, the, the, I mean, you can do different things with your time. Yeah. Time doesn't matter. But to go back to the train and boat, I have a daughter in Manchester studying. So we decided we would take her out by car mm. and boat to take all her stuff yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It took to the bones of a thousand euros. Yeah. So the cost was huge. And also in Great Britain or in England, it, the price of trains is astronomical. Yeah. From, my, from one of my daughters to travel to London to visit the other, from London to Manchester, it's 130 euros on the train. Wow. Like they definitely mm-hmm. don't make it easy to try and encourage people not to fly, yeah. not to drive. You know, it's, it's just like even one time I, I was going to a conference in Italy and I did look at if I actually got you know, the boat mm. from Dublin over, got the train, the whole lot. But it still would have taken me two days each yeah. way, you know. Mm. And I was like, well, that's lovely. But, mm. you know, it, it. but even then when you add up the carbon footprint as well, it's not necessarily any mm. better. Yeah. But there's ways that you can actually, um, mm. yeah. Oh, there are. 
and and I think that that um, the, the, I think that really reducing public transport is is a huge thing. I've noticed yeah. now the bus go from Scarif to Limerick is really busy, and yeah. I take it now more than I would never have thought about yeah. before. It's yeah. great, yeah, great, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And and also the trains are really busy, mm. and it's great to go Lowesville because they're cheaper now again. Yeah, know? yeah. So bringing it back to the book, mm. I when I looked at the index. I was very interested to see one that was called No Mo May. And yeah. I said, well, here we go. Let's see what this is about. Considering the amount of work you put into creating the beautiful lawn that you have, that's all wildflowers and having it all prepared. But I, I really appreciated actually reading that piece. Um, and it was interesting, actually, because I think around that time we had somebody on the show here um Franja Quinto and mm-hmm. she was talking about actually with that whole thing about no mo may that it's really only leave the lawn no longer than mm-hmm. about 40 centimetres because then it actually gets too long mm-hmm. for wild, for the actual wildflowers to properly grow you know you want to give space for wildlife to be able to go through your garden but actually it's not just to leave it completely yeah. neglected mm, it's yeah. actually there's still an element of maintenance to it mm-hmm. so it's fascinating even seeing all these different concepts coming through to try and address the the demise of our biodiversity, yeah. but that there are still s- steps in terms of maintenance. Mm-hmm. It's like even hedging hedgerows and stuff like that. You need to plant them, but you still need to maintain them as yeah, well, you know. Exactly. So out of the book itself, what was your favourite? Um, I, I, I don't know. I suppose reading through it, uh, I was in Kildimo last night, my own home place. We launched it in Kildimo. How did great. that go? It was great. We had a great night. In fact, it was too good night. It was very late <laughs> when I got home. Yeah. So <laughs> loads, loads and loads of neighbours. Um I suppose there was um, one of the pieces that, in fact, <laughs> uh, and it um, was the, I suppose, a reflection on uh, my life growing up, uh, but also on the fact that, that you know, the way we often Id- idealize rural life as it was years mm. ago, and we said it was great, but it was ever changing. Yeah. There has been no society ever static. Yeah. And to say that, that that was those were great times. Those people too were straining for something else and something mm. better and to move, you know. Mm. So um and it was just to reflect and I I, I kinda like that piece. Yeah. So um Well is there anything that you could read for us now just to give people a flavour? I I maybe I'll read read from that. Um um and in fact, there's a typo in the Nothing worse than when you get something published uh, and then you see the typo. And it's, yeah, it's winding our way out of the sugons of memory and it is winding our way. <laughs> there's a new missing thing. But anyway, and that, that, as anybody who writes will tell you, this is enough to make you lose total confidence in yourself. <laughs> but you can't do anything. <laughs> You'll never write again. You're useless. It, it haunts you. But anyway. Okay, we become acclimatised. We could become acclimatised to the fine weather. In recent weeks, even the most staid of males found themselves a pair of shorts, a t-shirt and a baseball cap. Venerable lads whose ankles haven't seen the light of day since the egg and spoon races of 1966 were exposing themselves to the elements. These are the times that make memories. They give us the material for remembering the summer, some sunny summers, ice cream, chip fans and staying out all evening, sometimes playing until midnight. There was a time when red lemonade would have been an essential part of the hydration regime, but not anymore. There is a tendency in us to idealise long ago and remember, remember things as if all the world happened in a sun-drenched John Hind postcard. But that only represents part of the truth. I certainly remember sunny days in the meadow when men fashioned their handkerchiefs into headgear, tying knots in the four corners to anchor the squares of cloth on their heads and save their bald patches from the blaze of the sun. 
Looking back at those times from the mechanised perspective of 21st century farming, three things are remarkable. Firstly, the fact that there would be more than one man working in a meadow. Secondly, that these men would be out under the elements. And thirdly, that they would all carry handkerchiefs. Much has changed. Hardly anyone sets foot on a meadow these days. The work is done from the air-conditioned heights of a two-storey tractor. One could safely say that on the modern farm, all the silage made and all the hay saved is untouched by human hand. As regards the handkerchiefs, few, aside from Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> and Francis Brennan, carry that particular accessory. To continue in a sartorial vein, back in the day, any male over the age of 12, appearing in a meadow in short pants, would have been looked on with deep suspicion. It took a very hot day for the older men to strip from jacket to waistcoat to shirt sleeves. You knew the pressure was really on when the braces slipped from the shoulders and hung down by the thighs. A length of twine would be enlisted as a replacement to ensure the force of gravity didn't cause the shapeless trousers to slide earthward, revealing the state of the long johns. We were happier then. Were we happier then? Was life sweeter? If it was, we didn't realise it at the time, and that's not much good. Hindsight is no cure for existential angst. I have a sense of that world as one that was constantly straining for betterment, eager to move to another level. I can't say I felt those days in the meadow were part of a way of life that had its own inherent, unquestionable and timeless rhythm. Every year there was something different, a different pulse to the beat. It could be a newer mower that knocked the hay more efficiently, or a mechanical turner that took more of the misery out of turning the damp green sward with a pitchfork. The arrival of the square baler changed everything. It put paid to the centuries-old tradition of making wines or cocks of hay. Associated skills and practices also disappeared, such as making sugons, ropes of twisted hay used to tie down the wines. Then there was the practice of pulling the butt, which involved going around the bottom of the wind on your hands and knees, pulling out a foot-deep circumference of hay, so that the mound did not sit flat on the ground, but appeared perched on a sort of pedestal. It helped keep the dampness from climbing. Our farm and those of our neighbours were on the flight path to Shannon Airport, and planes making their last approach would roar over our heads as if mocking our meadow-bound labour. Looking up, we longed for the glamour and excitement of the lives and lifestyles of the, that these machines represented. Our parents mightn't exactly have wanted all that for us, but they certainly wanted us to have the skills and capacity to have a shot at it. There was nothing timeless about that life and lifestyle. There was a constant straining for the not yet, for something else around the corner. The recent spell of hot weather put me in mind of those days and opened the photo album I carry around in my head. Among its grainy contents are snaps of yellow meadows, red David Brown tractors and men in improvised white skull caps bent over pitchforks while youngsters look up wistfully at the underbelly of a rumbling jumbo jet. My own three are about to follow that rumble to the world of London publishing, to the hallowed halls of our learned friends, and to dreams of a life under the, the light of musical theatre. They are unshackled from the old rhythms. At their age, I was in a seminary training to be an old man. Thank you, Jim. So, my last question for you. What's next? What's next? I really don't know. What's for <laughs> volume three? I might think about doing a memoir, but a memoir is um, is very expositional. Mm. And a memoir also affects other people. Mm. Yeah. You know, so um, I, you, you need to... Um, although they say true writing is the kind of writing you would do that you'd, that you'd be afraid your mother might read. <laughs> That's it. 
And do you ever get any feedback from people that maybe mentioned, obviously you're not necessarily going to name names, but that may be mentioned within the stories? Um, I sometimes get people trying to identify people. Yeah. And yeah, I have yeah. this particular character who pulls up and he says, I know who you were talking about this week. And I say, you don't. I do. You don't. I do. Well, it's gone to the grave with me, I'd say. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> although last night I did mention a classmate of mine who introduced me to drinking coffee and he th- threatened to sue me. So... <laughs> <laughs> And you have your, your second launch tonight, Nagamalo. Yes, I nearly forgot. Yeah, we were launching. To, to, well, I decided I couldn't. You see, I had one in Limerick and I had one in Clare because I couldn't get visas for all the Limerick people to come across. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, um, I, we're having one in Ogunlo tonight in the community hall at seven o'clock. Um, uh, we're having it early because people have lots of things on at the moment. Yeah. So we said, listen, seven o'clock won't put in on too many arrangements. And Marion Harkin, TD, I do a bit of work with Marion, PR and policy work with Marion. So uh, she's going to launch it for me tonight. I went to school with her son, Stu, in Castle Martyr in Cork, so I know her through that. Nice. So. And so just as a final, how can people buy the book? Um, it's available locally here in uh, in Bands in Margaret Bands gift shop. Uh, it's available in the in Heaney's in Killaloo. It's also available in the Forge in Killaloo. It's available in O'Mahony's in Limerick, O'Mahony's in mm-hmm. Ennis, and it's online from jimobrien.ie or from O'Mahony's.ie or from LimerickWriterCenter.com. So get your copy today, Jim yes. O'Brien. Thank you very much thanks for your time and best of luck for the, thanks, the thanks, season Tom. ahead. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks for having me. Okay. And now thank we are you. going to have in honour of Jim the Beatles with Paperback Writer. Ha! Thank you. Paperback Writer.